Well, welcome to Trinity Bible Church. If you are a visitor here today, um, my name is Fred Warren. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity. Um, I don't normally do the preaching. Uh, Ken Newman and Bo Andrews normally do most of the heavy lifting. Uh, then Stuart Holland fills in from, from time to time. So this is actually my uh, first time in the pulpit. So <laughs> thank you. Um, see if you're whooping a little bit later. So, But i tell you that for, for two reasons. One, if, uh, if you're not edified here today, please return next week. And I assure you, Ken Newman, Spirit of the Lord, will uh, we'll do that. And then secondly, um, if your kids ask, uh, Mommy, why is that man hyperventilating? Then uh, you'll have the basis of a, uh, at least the basis of an answer there. So we're going to begin by, I'm going to ask you a question. And that is, as a Christian looking out in the world and kind of seeing everything that's going on, um, it just seems like the world is falling apart. And what are we to do with that? If you look over in Europe, there's a, a war that's raging. There's death, destruction. Uh, food supplies are being, being disrupted. Um, you know, blood and treasure, it's, it's terrible. You look over in Asia, there's currently what we, I guess what we would call a cold war that quite honestly could turn pretty hot pretty quick. Um, in the Middle East, well, that's the Middle East, so I think that's all we have to say about that. To our north, we have uh, euthanasia actually being, being normalized as a, a means of health care somehow. I'm not exactly sure how that works out. And then closer to home, we have attacks on you know, marriage, um, identity of male and female he created them. I mean, just common sense things are being attacked, and it seems like our world is completely being turned upside down. And then we get into the personal struggles, where we have death and illness, lost friendships, lost jobs, things of that nature. I guess what I'm saying is, is there is cause for our hearts to be troubled. So let's close in prayer, shall we? Well, ironically, that's actually not just a little joke. That's actually a a teaching point, to be honest, because for those who don't, who don't know Christ, that's where it ends. There, it doesn't get better. It doesn't get better in this life, and it certainly doesn't get better in the next. But for those of us who do know Christ, it gets a whole lot better. And while we do have reason for our, or reason for our hearts to be troubled, there's more reason for our hearts to not be troubled. And so that's what we're going to talk about today Today in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Now, to set up the context, if we go back to chapter 13, we have the disciples meeting with Jesus in the upper room. Now, John, the Gospel of John doesn't talk about it actually being in an upper room. We know that from the Gospel of Mark. But this is where Jesus got together for the Passover meal with his disciples. And he revealed several things to them that, again, would have troubled their hearts. So first he said that one of them would betray him. And of course, that ended up being Judas. And then he, uh, secondly, he said uh, Peter would deny him not once, not twice, but, but three times. And then finally, kind of the, 
the big bomb is that he said that he would be leaving them. And I don't think they ever expected that to happen. And so what follows is four chapters is some of the most beautiful teaching in the entire Bible. It's chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. A lot of people call it the upper room discourse. Others call it the farewell discourse. But regardless of what you call it, it's Jesus talking to his disciples, not just talking to them, talking with them and counseling them and helping them and loving on them and giving them reasons for their hearts to not be troubled. And so we're going to pick up, like I said, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. And there is so much encouragement in these three verses, I think I'm going to struggle getting out of here in a reasonable time. So, but we'll try. All right, John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Please take a moment just to pray silently to yourself and prepare yourself for the receiving of the word. Father, as we come before you today in worship, we ask for illumination of our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit. Lord, diminish the sinful, selfish disposition that we all possess. Help us to overcome our tendency to distract ourselves with the worries or the temptations of the world. And compel us to exclusive, to focus exclusively on what it is that you'll have us hear from your word today. If there's anyone who hears this and does not have faith in your son, Jesus Christ, we ask that you send your spirit to quicken their hearts and open their minds in repentance and belief. All glory to you forever and always. We pray all these things in the name of your son and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So in these three little verses, I think we have about seven reasons why why our hearts should not be troubled, why the disciples' hearts should not be troubled, but also why our hearts should not be troubled. Because while Jesus is speaking to his disciples, it's kind of like, in a sense, we're listening in. But at the same time, he's speaking to us as well. Okay, So he's speaking primarily to his disciples, but he's also speaking to us. And um, and I know there's seven, and I wasn't trying to be hyper-spiritual by picking the number seven. We just kind of landed there. So, All right, so reason number one. Everything that is happening is a part of God's plan. So if we look at the, at the end of verse one, it says, believe in God. So we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to believe in God? Today's modern audience, a lot of times, hears something different than what Jesus actually meant. In our world, when we say, do you believe in something, it generally means, do you believe that this thing exists? So do you believe in God means, by and large, do 
Uh, do you believe that God exists? Like unicorns or UFOs or certain holiday characters. But biblically speaking, that's not what it means. And sometimes this in our conversations with believers as well as non-believers, um, we, we tend to get a little bit confused. I remember one time I was talking to a Muslim, and he said, oh, we're not all that different. You believe in Jesus. Well, we believe in Jesus too. Now, when he said that, do you think he meant believe in Jesus in the same way I do? No, absolutely not. I'm not exactly sure what he meant. I, I assume it was something to do with believing that God was a historical person or something of that nature. And all I did was ask him, well, do you believe that God, you know, that Jesus is the Son of God? He is God himself who took on flesh and died on a cross in order to save those who would believe in him. And he was like, absolutely not. Well, then you don't believe in Jesus, and you don't believe in God in the way that we do. So they meant two completely different things. In other words, to believe is to to believe in something in the Bible is to trust. And Jesus is telling them to trust God. And the reason they should trust God is because they can turn to their scriptures and they can look at the Old Testament. Where in the Old Testament, it's not just children's stories and it's not just a bunch of wise Jewish men who are putting forth stories in order to make us feel better. It's actually historical narratives, and these historical narratives reveal who God is, reveals his character, reveals his faithfulness, and reveals why we should trust him. And when you read the Old Testament, it all points forward to Christ. It points forward to the events that will occur within hours of the time that Jesus is actually giving this this little teaching with his, his disciples. And so, in other words, the Lord has orchestrated everything that was happening. And he knows what he's doing. And so, what Jesus is telling them is, trust God, because he knows what he's doing. Reason number two, for our hearts to not be troubled, is they have all the reason in the world to trust Jesus as well. It says at the very end of verse 1, uh, Believe also in me. A question, who talks like that? Trust God and trust me? Would Ezekiel or Isaiah have ever written anything like that? Would John have written that about himself or would Paul have written it? No, there's no way. They would never would have preached that, said that, thought that. Because they would not put themselves on the same level as God. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. And so... You know, we lose the impact of that in our 21st century world because we're used to it. But 2,000 years ago, that was a mind-blowing reality. And so what Jesus is saying is, you can trust me as well. And in both, believe in God as well as believe in me also. The goodness and the sovereignty is, is presupposed. They are good, and they were are faithful. They will do the right thing. What is going to happen is good, and they're sovereign to make sure that what happens, what what is supposed to happen, actually does happen. So, we have those two reasons to begin with: trust God, trust trust also in me. And in reality, we could wrap the sermon up there, because when God says trust me, 
when Jesus says, trust me, that should be good enough reason. But you know what? Jesus met his disciples in their weakness. He met them where they were, and he, he, he counseled them. He, he, he uh, edified them. He helped them along and gave them, although he didn't have to, gave them more reason to trust them. We got five to go. So number three, they have been adopted by God the Father. We have been adopted by God the Father. Verse 2 says, In my Father's house there are many rooms. Now, the King James Version renders that, that, that word rooms, renders it as mansions. And the health and wealth folks have taken that and run with it. So the, I guess the idea is um, that there's a, a palace or something with a bunch of mansions somehow associated with it. But... Um, we shouldn't think of it like that. We shouldn't think of it in, in terms of the um, our dwelling with the Father is going to be this big, ornate, palatial sort of thing. That's, that's not what this verse means at all. Um, as a matter of fact, in terms of the, the word that's rendered as rooms, uh, it's used one other place in the New Testament, only one other place, and that's just a little bit later in this same chapter. It's actually verse 23 of chapter 20, of 14. So Jesus answered, answered him, responding to a question, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and will come to him and make our home with him. So it's talking about the dwelling of the Spirit. Now, if you take mansions and use it in the same, uh, in this context, it would mean that, um, you know, our bodies are mansions, and I don't know about you, but I don't think we can describe this one as a, as a mansion. So no, so what we have to do is shift our gaze from the idea of the rooms or the mansions to, uh, to the Father's house, my Father's house. And I think that's the emphasis of this little phrase. The Hebrew word um, for Father's house is betab, B-E-T-A-B, betab or something like that. I don't speak Hebrew, so I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it. But uh, but it's rendered Father's house. And if you go into the Old Testament and do a, a search, you'll find Father's house all over, the, all over the Old Testament. And the idea was that there is a, a, a central figure within a, a household or an extended household, and this is the patriarch. This patriarch is the oldest living male of a certain branch of a, a family. And this patriarch would live in a household or a collection of houses, almost like a compound or something. Um, and he'd live there with his wife or his wives, um, his unmarried children, and then their, um, and then his married sons, and then his, and their wives and children. And then the married daughters would go off and they would join somebody else's, uh, father's house, uh, the, the, the house of their, their new, the father's house of their new husband. Okay. So the idea is that that was the basic unit of Israelite society, was the father's house. And in it, you had, uh, they lived together, uh, they lived together, they, um, uh, of course, you know, interacted with one another, 
They planted crops together. They worked the fields together. They lived and died together. It was a really a close-knit unit. And the patriarch was the one, the father, was the one who was responsible for the spiritual, the economic, the physical well-being of the entire household. And so when you look at, in the Old Testament and you look at um, orphans, you look at widows, you look at travelers, there were folks who did not have a father's house to be a part of. They weren't taken care of. And that's one of the reasons why those, those people are so special to the Lord, because they're the ones that could not survive. And they, were, uh, they, they would typically be oppressed because they didn't have the means to defend themselves. And so the idea here is we are being adopted into the Heavenly Father's house that he is caring for us spiritually, physically, the whole nine yards. And so the beauty here is that we're under his care, his protection, and authority. We've been adopted. Now, since Luther, when we talk about salvation, most of the time what we talk about is justification. You guys have heard of that. It Basically, you think of it as a, a courtroom with justification. Um, you've committed sins. You've offended a holy God. And when you're justified by faith in Christ, you are declared not guilty. And that's truth, and that's wonderful, and that's a beautiful thing. But adoption is that same salvation. It's just a different aspect of it. And so it's, you can think of it as um, when, the, uh, when the judge, God the judge, bangs the hammer and says not guilty. And he steps down off the bench you can have that imagery, uh, takes off his, his, his um, what do you call them, magisterial robes or whatever, and he kneels down and he embraces us as his children. So I think it was Alistair Begg said, a, a judge um, can pronounce you not guilty, but he doesn't then invite you into his house for pancakes. That's exactly what the, uh, what the Heavenly Father does. He brings us into his house. We dine at his table. All right, reason number four. Jesus is himself, Jesus himself is securing a place for them in heaven. He says in verse two, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, don't think of Jesus for the last 2,000 years wielding a hammer, running around inside of coveralls, building us a big mansion to move into. That's not what we should picture. I'll be honest, that used to come to my mind. Um, Know this. The place was built. The place was prepared for us 2,000 years ago. The preparations was done. They were done at the cross. The cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. By the time we get to John chapter 21, the place is prepared. And so the idea is that um, you know Christ has prepared it, prepared us a place, and he is sitting on his throne, and he'll return when it's time to return, and he'll come and get us. Reason number five. I hold up two fingers. Reason number five. A place is being prepared for specifically for each of them, for each of the disciples, and for each of you who believe in, in Christ. In other words, if we shift the emphasis from go to prepare a place to the for you, then the idea there is, each of them are known by name. Each of us are known by name. 
Our place is secure and has been since before the world was even created. So it's not like the Father has a bunch of rooms like a block reservation, you know, block of reservations or something, and whoever gets there first gets it. No, your room is there. And if you do want to think of a metaphor of, you know, having rooms, your name is on it. So he finished his work. He's with the Heavenly Father, and that's where we're headed as well. Reason number six for our hearts to not be troubled. Yes, Jesus is leaving them, but he shall return. And so they're on the other side of the cross, and so he was going to leave them. Of course, it it occurred 2,000 years ago. But verse 3 says, I will come again and will take you to myself. Now, his second coming is going to be way different than his first. The first time he came, he was came as the lamb. Next time, it's going to be as the lion. First time, he came as the servant. Next time, we'll be as the king. All those terrible things that we talked about at the opening of the sermon, well, there's going to be a reckoning for them, and it's going to be to the glory of God. Be it through grace or wrath, he will be glorified. His return marks the final consummation of all things including the restoration of creation, the eternal reward for the redeemed, and the eternal punishment of the wicked. All Christians should long for his return, to see him gloriously carry out the the victory that was already won at the cross. Reason number seven, the disciples will once again be with the Lord Jesus Christ, this time for eternity. So he says in verse 3, where I am, you may be also. So our salvation is secure. John, 10, John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus is speaking. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That will be our home, the heavenly home, with Christ, no strife, no violence, no poverty, no sickness, no tears, and no death for eternity. So there's a bunch more reasons. Uh, there probably are, but um, that's the seven I found in just those little three tiny verses. Now what I'd like to do is make a handful of observations. I think we have four. Yeah, we have four. So observation number one. Jesus' priorities here are selfless. Now, if you think about what was about to happen to him, he was going to be arrested, tortured, and murdered in the most brutal, conceivable way. He had a lot going on. In a few more chapters, he's going to be sweating blood in the garden. But Jesus did not focus on himself at that point. He was selfless. And he still ministered to his disciples. And I think that that is a quality, that's a habit that I think you and I uh, need to practice. We need to imitate Christ in this way. I had a friend of mine who had leukemia, and I went to go visit him in in the hospital and in the medical center. And uh, I walked in, it was nighttime. Uh, I walked in and, you know, in a person's eyes, you can look in their eyes and it says a lot. And in his eyes, I could see he did not feel good. He was tired. Um, there was pain. But also there was kind of this spark there, too. There was this, like, joy, you know. 
his skin was purple with a with a rash. I mean, you could tell he he was not feeling it, you know. And so I immediately wanted to to just leave and let him rest. And he said, no, 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 brother, hang out, hang out. Let's, let's talk. And I said, okay, it'd be great. So we talked for a few minutes and somebody else, some um, person in scrubs walked in and uh, said, hey, Jimmy, I just wanted to say, you know, say goodbye. Thanks for, uh, thanks for praying for me. And uh, I'll, I'll talk to you later. And the guy laughed and I'm like, wow, you got a really, really nice nurse. You know, he uh, stopped by to say hello before he was leaving. He goes, oh, yeah, that's, that's not my nurse. That's some guy. Um, I was being wheeled down for a, a test. And it's some guy that I, I started talking to. And so here is this pain that I probably can't even imagine. And he was taking the time to minister to somebody that he didn't even know. The conviction and the encouragement that came out of that story, knowing that, was absolutely amazing. And so I can say that he was imitating Christ in, um, in that action, in what he was doing there, in setting those priorities. Even, um, even at his worst time, he was still minister- ministering to somebody else. And so the idea there is, is our worst times are often the best times to Im- imitate Christ. Observation number two, heaven is a real place. So... We live in this modern scientific world that believes that you something's not real if you can't see it and touch it, you know that sort of thing. I actually heard Carl. I was watching something this morning. I heard Carl Sagan say that faith is belief in the absence of evidence. Like you, poor lost soul, you have no idea what what faith is. Go go back and see um, reason number one. By the way. Um, so, another quick story. I Not long after I was saved, I was in my mid-30s, I had a, a friend of mine um, named Mark. Now, I was not raised in the church. Um, every funeral that I had ever been to was a complete tragedy. It was people basically saying he's in a better place, but not having any idea what that meant. That better place was more or less the power of positive thinking. And so when Mark's dad died, I went to go comfort him. I didn't really know him that well. I'd only known him a couple of months. I went to go comfort him because I kind of expected it to be a complete tragic situation there, right? So I show up at the, at the funeral parlor, and it was, I won't call it a party, but it was almost like a party. They were sad because they were going to miss the man, the husband, the father, the friend. But they were happy. They were joyous because they knew exactly where he was. And it wasn't one of those just, em- just empty words saying he's in a better place. It was knowledge. It was understanding, absolutely knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was in a better place, that he was with Christ at that time. I had never in my life seen anything like that before. And I, I noodled on that, well, I, I still noodle on it from time to time. That was 15 years ago. And so the idea there is, is knowing that, going through that situation, I realized that it, it solidified it for me, that heaven is a real place. It's a place where we are headed. 
a place that we are going if we have faith in Christ. And so, um, you know, we can't let the world shoot that doubt into our minds. It's not childish thinking. It's not, per, you know, it's not po- the power of positive thinking or anything like that. It is, it is a real place. You know, and kind of a corollary to that is, you know, we often think of our re- religion, Christianity as our religion. You know, you have a, a, a shelf, like a bookshelf, and you have these books lined up. And you have, you know, religion and politics and science and, you know, X, Y, Z, right? Well, we often take Christ, put him in a book, put him up on one of the shelves, and then take him down every Sunday morning and come into church, right? No, that's not, that's not Christianity. Christianity is the bookshelf. It's where every other book, everything that has anything to do with our lives, where it fits. So the question is not whether Christ fits into our lives. It's how our lives fit into Christ. And so... You know, we have to look at it as more than just encouragement, more than just, uh, I keep saying power of positive thinking. There's a Zig Ziglar thing that's bouncing around in my head right now. So it's more than that. It is a real place. Observation number three, Jesus not only prepares a place for us, he prepares us for the place. And so... You know, in our natural state, we're not suited to have communion with the Holy God. That's why he has to change our hearts. That's why we receive the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, I, I think it was C.S. Lewis um, used the analogy. Um, but I, I haven't been able to find it. So if you guys, if anybody knows exactly where this came from, you know, let, please let me know. I keep quoting it, but I have no idea where it came from. Anyway, the idea is a dog you think of a dog, we, I know we have dog lovers in here. If you think of a dog in, in its natural state, it's not very lovable. It's dirty and mangy and poops all over the place. And, you know, if you bring it into your house, it's going to tear stuff up and bite stuff and bite you. And, and what you have to do in order to love a dog, to make a dog lovable, is to train it. Bring it in, teach it how to sit, teach it how to heal what not to chew, what to chew, where to go potty, that sort of thing. And that's exactly what the Lord does for us. He gives us his Holy Spirit because we cannot have communion with him in our natural state. He has to make us lovable. He has to make us holy. And it begins with, we talked about justification a little while ago, and then you go through a period or a process of sanctification And then we finally land on glorification. Now, glorification won't be in this life. It will be in the next. But that is the way that we are able to have communion with a a holy God. But what he does between now and then is he, he goes through the process of, again, not only preparing the place for us, but preparing us for for the place. And then finally, observation number four. I'm just going to read this. Um, this is the one I really don't want to mess up, right? Ultimately, there are only two father's houses. When Adam rebelled against, the, against God in the garden, he did so as the representative of the whole human race. As a result, all of his descendants, including us, live under Satan's roof. 
Our natures are corrupt as we share in Adam's overwhelming desire to decide right and wrong, to be our own gods. The result is that we have put ourselves at enmity with our Creator. But while that Creator is holy and just, He is also gracious and loving. And so He provided a way for us to be removed from Satan's house and be adopted into His own house, the Heavenly Father's house. He did this by sending His only begotten Son to take on human flesh, live the perfectly righteous life that we cannot, die a painful and humiliating death that he did not deserve, be miraculously resurrected, and then ascend into heaven, which is where he is now, sitting at the right hand of the Father, the place of honor and power and authority. We cannot have fellowship with God on our own. We cannot simply move into his house under our own terms. No, we first have to recognize the fact that we continuously rebel against him, spitting in his face, denying his authority, and defying, defiling the good gifts that he has provided. And when we repent and believe, that is, turn away from this rebellion and trust the work of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, then we are brought into the Heavenly Father's house. We are adopted into his family. We are eternally under his care and protection. And there is no one who can ever take that away from us. The cross is where the love of God satisfied the wrath of God. And the cross is where the adoption papers were signed for those who trust in his son for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray. Actually, one more thing before. There's a bulletin. Um, The back of the bulletin, there's phone numbers. And um, if you don't know Christ, if you don't know Jesus, if you have any questions... Well, one, you can, there's several of us that you can talk to after service today. But you can use those phone numbers too. I'm Fred, like I said, please, please call me. Or you can call any of, the, any of the elders or deacons. We're happy, happy to talk to you. It is why we're here. All right? So, um, so now, let us pray. Father, we thank you for giving us a glimpse into what Jesus said to his disciples on his last night with them. We thank you for the outpouring of love, the encouragement, and the hope that he gave to his disciples and that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, give to us. Father, when our hearts are troubled and we're tempted to despair over the circumstances that surround us, we ask that your Spirit remind us of Jesus' words to his disciples so that you lift us up and compel us to fix our gaze upon you. Father, we ask that you open the hearts of those who do not know you to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Breathe life into those dry bones and be glorified in the salvation of another soul. Father, we love you and we trust you. Help us to glorify you in everything that we do. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.